Hi, you guys made it, and it is so sunny and beautiful outside. Just an expression of your worship to Jesus. So if we haven't met, my name's Colin. I, uh, along with Gavin, help run our communities department here. And I come bearing both good news and bad news. Uh, the good news is we're not talking about sex this week. So <laughs> that's good news for you. It's mostly good news for me. But it's at least, I just want you to celebrate that with me. Uh, the bad news is we are talking about adultery, final judgment, demons, and family drama. So it's going to be a party. Before we do, though, before we get into all that stuff you're just chomping in the bit to hear about, think with me about going to the airport. You can imagine our beloved PDX that we all know and love so deeply. When I was a kid, I grew up flying from LAX to Sacramento twice a year to spend time with my grandfather. And we would play hours and hours of Monopoly and Cribbage. And if you don't know what Cribbage is, it's just, it's a grandpa game. Yeah, three of you. <laughs> uh, we would go swimming and play cards by the lake and eat French toast, just all the grandpa stuff. It was great. And every time I would go to the airport, as a, as a kid, I would go through security by myself, 10 to 15 minutes generally at LAX, which is a big deal if you're from Southern California. I would keep all of my articles of clothing on. And when I would land in Sacramento, I would go through the passenger boarding bridge, and there would be my grandfather waiting for me at the gate. Jump forward a few years to flying in a post-9-11 world. Flying out of LAX in, say, January of 2002, one would have a drastically different experience. Long gone would be the days of a short security line. This time, belts are coming off, shoes are coming off, everything's out of your pockets, into the bins. Uh, this was a massive change. What? I have to take off my belt? I like these shoes. I'm not going to take off these shoes. These are Doc Martens. These are going to take five minutes to put back on. What do you, why, why is this taking so long? Shock and confusion, surprise. Meanwhile, two weeks ago, I flew out of PDX. Uh, the line was relatively short, because praise God for PDX. But without being told, shoes came off, belt came off, Jacket came off, computer goes into the bin. I walk through the X-ray machine, arms up, whoosh, as it goes around. I step out, I wait there waiting for them to pat me down because I get pat down every single time. I just w embrace the frisk. And <laughs> my response to this, you know my response to this whole ordeal? Just complete and utter acceptance. I'm, not, I'm no longer shocked, I'm not surprised by the whole thing. Just a shrug and kind of going through the motions. In fact, I don't even need the instructions anymore. I, I know everything that's going to be asked of me. I know shoes have to come off, belt has to come off, everything out of the pockets. It's familiarity. It's all, it's all commonplace. I know it already. And when it comes to flying, uh, such apathy can be quite helpful, meaning I'm less impatient. I'm not a jerk to the TSA agents who are always nice, mostly in Portland. Uh, but when it comes to the teachings of Jesus, such nonchalant familiarity has consequences. With that, turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 12. If you remember what's been happening in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus has been going around preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand and proclaiming that he was Israel's long-awaited king, bringing all that was broken to rights. And Jesus has been, in chapter 12, Jesus has been met with opposition that could be summed up in two controversies. The first of which is a Sabbath controversy, 
where Jesus is accused of breaking Sabbath commands from the Torah. The second is a spirits controversy where Jesus is accused of having an evil spirit or a demon being in league with the devil himself. And now we find ourselves today in a third controversy, a sign controversy. Look down in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Notice who confronts Jesus, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. One writer calls them the serious and the Bible teachers. They're the religious leaders of the day. If you're not familiar, the, uh, the scribes, in essence, were the guardians of truth. They studied the scriptures. They committed themselves to memorizing the scriptures. They were the experts on them, and they challenged Jesus theologically. Meanwhile, the Pharisees were the guardians of practice. Yes, they did study the scriptures, but they were more concerned with standards for holiness, for how the scriptures were to be lived out as the people of God. And they challenged Jesus morally. So put more simply, the scribes determine what is true and what is false, while the Pharisees determine what is right and what is wrong. Now, it's unclear what kind of sign exactly these leaders were looking for. Because in this chapter alone, we've seen Jesus heal a man with a shriveled hand and cast out a demon. But clearly, these miracles were not enough. What they were looking for was something that would, without a doubt, show them that Jesus was from God. It was a divine stamp of approval on Jesus' life and on his message. Um, in essence, they're, they're saying, okay, you speak for God, prove it. Prove it. I, I double-dog there. You show me, how do you speak for God? Jesus replies, saying, so he's ready with a reply. Verse 39, he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Thanks, Jesus. Uh, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We'll get to the sign of Jonah in just a moment, but the outset, just notice, Jesus is not in favor of signs. He, he will not play the religious leader's game. Instead, Jesus uses two adjectives to describe a generation or a group of people that seek a sign, wicked and adulterous. Now, at first gloss, uh, wicked can seem pretty harsh, and it is. It's strong language. But we must remember the flow of Matthew's gospel. Think with me. Who was the first person in Matthew's gospel to demand a sign from Jesus? Anyone? The sa Satan, yes, the devil himself. Remember the language, if you are the Son of God, turn this rock to bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from this wall, and so on. In effect, Jesus is saying, you are not as righteous as you think. You have it all wrong. In fact, you commit the very same errors as the evil one himself. The second term, adulterous, taps into a theme that runs all the way through the Bible. If you were to run your fingers across the pages of Scripture, one of the dominant metaphors for God's relationship to his people is the relationship of a bride and groom. And in effect, Jesus is saying that the kind of people who seek a sign tend to be the kind of people who do not remain faithful. Because their love and their loyalty is built on what satisfies them in a particular moment. Their faithfulness is fleeting. 
gone in a moment, gone when they feel like it. With this in mind, Jesus says that they will be given no signs except for one, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Many of us are familiar with the story of Jonah, uh, whether you grew up reading it or you re- watched the Veggie Tales uh, depiction of it, the people who slap you with large fishes. And if you're not familiar with the story, a prophet named Jonah is called by God to go to Nineveh, a civilization of Israel's enemies. Jonah responds with a quick, nope, and starts going in the other direction. He hops in a boat where he then encounters a storm and then is ultimately cast into a sea, into the sea, is swallowed by a large fish, is vomited back up onto land by that large fish, and then says, you know, I guess I will go to Nineveh after all. To which point he goes to Nineveh, preaches a measly five-word sermon, and all of Nineveh repents and turns to God. The text says that even the cows were covered with sackcloth. So a Portland translation would be, even the labradoodles repented and were sorrowful. (laughs) So what exactly is this sign of Jonah? There are a few options. Um, Some speculate option one is that it's Jesus' death and burial, mirroring Jonah's three days in the belly of the fish. Second option is Jesus' resurrection, mirroring Jonah's coming out of the fish. And the third option is Jesus' preaching uh, to invite repentance, mirroring Jonah's preaching. Uh, I would argue that the best option is probably all three of them put together. That Jesus' life and preaching ministry are a first sign about who he is. And that he will be fully vindicated in the ultimate sign of his death and resurrection. That when God raised Jesus from the dead, he put his divine stamp of approval on Jesus' life and message. So in effect, the leaders will get the sign they're looking for. But by then, it will be too late. Let's read on verse 41 to 42. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus' indictment against Israel's leaders consists of two warnings. Uh, He alludes to two stories from the Old Testament. And then he provides a parable, which we'll get to in a moment. The first story is about the Ninevites, the people who Jonah preached to and who repented. Again, if you're not familiar with the story, the Ninevites were a brutal people. Just a brutal people. In in essence, this is what they did. They created an army. They marched into Israel, took it over by force, power, human trafficking, and violence. That's what kind of people the Ninevites were. These are broken, sinful people. Further, these are Israel's enemies, not their friends. Not to mention, these people are foreigners who were not a part of Israel, were not a part of the chosen people, and they were thus outsiders to the covenant. The second example that Jesus gives to make the same point is about the queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba, in the book of 1 Kings. Uh, At the time, King Solomon was ruling over Israel, and he was touted as the wisest man who ever lived. So the queen of Sheba gathers some camels and spices and gold and precious stones, and she travels to Israel to, quote, test Solomon with hard questions. So upon meeting Solomon, she asks all of her questions, and then she accepts his answers and responds by worshiping and giving praise to Yahweh. Uh, It's speculated that Sheba was in modern-day Ethiopia, 
So like the Ninevites, the queen of Sheba was a foreigner. She was not a member of God's people. Also like Nineveh, she responded to Yahweh and to his message. Even prior to the life of Jesus, she didn't have the whole picture. She didn't have a theology of the cross or the resurrection. She probably had lots of moral failure. And yet, notice this. Where are the Ninevites and the queen of Sheba on the day of judgment? They're on God's side. The gospel takes these outsiders and makes them insiders. I think that is the heart of the gospel, that he takes those that are outside, those that are far, and brings them to the center. That is the good news of Jesus. So that if you are an outsider, you feel like an outsider, there's good news for you. You are brought into the center by Jesus' life, death, resurrection. His mercy is abundant for you. Jesus points to both the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba and says that on the coming day of judgment, they— will stand in judgment over this generation, the generation that we're talking about here. Why? Because both of them heard the word of God and then responded. The Ninevites repented when they heard Jonah preach. The queen of Sheba listened to Solomon's wisdom, is what the text says. And now something greater than Solomon and Jonah is here. And on judgment day, where exactly are the leaders? They're the ones being judged. This would have absolutely scandalized the religious leaders. Wait, wait, wait. They're going to judge us? Yes, exactly. Because they repented and listened, and you thought you knew it all. Notice God's disposition is abundant mercy. He's slow to anger and abounding in compassion. He's kind. He's gracious to outsiders, to the repentant the humble, the those that know they don't have it all together. God is merciful. Yet there is no way around it. There will be a final judgment. We will all be accountable for what we have heard and for what we have or have not responded to. So the religious leaders who have heard Jesus' teaching, who studied the Torah, who know a lot— and yet have not responded, are to take Jesus' words as a very stern warning. That unless they respond, unless they listen and repent, a worse fate is coming for them. To emphasize this point, Jesus provides a second warning using a parable about a demoniac. Verse 43 through 45. When an impure spirit comes out of a person— It goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. So when a demon is cast out of someone, it starts looking for a place to rest. Then it has a bright idea. It says, I will return to the house I left or the person I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live in that house. They break into the old house, so to speak. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it'll be with this wicked generation. Now, as fascinating as it would be to talk about the mechanics of exorcism and give you a five-step path for how to cast out demons, that is not ultimately the point of this text. Uh, Remember that so far Jesus has cast out demons. In this chapter, he just had a dispute about demons. Uh, And casting out demons has been a marker of his ministry. So Jesus uses the example of demonic possession and repossession to talk about the fate of this generation, his audience, after his ministry, in the wake of it. 
Like someone who's been freed from an evil spirit, Jesus' Jesus' audience had a glimpse of what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. Sick have been healed, good news has been taught, and so on. Yet, a warning remains for them. You can be free from evil in your life. You can experience and see Jesus' ministry, even be touched by his delivering power, but not change your internal world and still set yourself up to be worse than when you started. If you do not allow his teaching, his life, his way to take up residence in you, you're just a tidy house with no occupant. It's empty. And you're likely to fall into and be filled with the same broken patterns you did before, if not worse. How are we doing? Great. Verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd... His mother and brothers stood outside, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside, wanting to speak to you. So Jesus finishes his indictment of this generation, only to be interrupted with, Psst, Jesus, your mother and your bros are outside. They really want to talk to you. And remember, Jesus is likely teaching inside a home. His family hasn't come inside. They're standing outside. Verse 48. He replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And you thought your Thanksgiving was brutal. (laughs) Can you imagine just the drama of this moment, the tense nature of this scene? Let's think about context for a second. Jesus was a first century Israelite. And as an observer of the Torah, Jesus would have had an off-the-charts high value for family. Many Jews believe that the greatest of the Ten Commandments was to honor your father and mother. Further, in the ancient world, the bond of highest loyalty was the bond of siblings, of brothers and sisters. Uh, None of these values tend to resonate with us in the modern world. Many of us, as soon as we're able, uh, move away from our parents. Hello, Portland, Oregon. And most of us, married or not, tend to think about our romantic relationships as the most important relationship in our lives. But for Jesus and his world, this was not so. Yet, he makes this statement about his true family. Now, I think it would be both uncharitable and biblically unfounded to say that Jesus didn't care for his immediate family. Other gospels uh, indicate that Jesus had deep care for his family, in particular his mother. Uh, One of his last actions before going to the cross was making sure that his mother would have care, that she would be taken care of after he died. But further, Jesus did not seek to undermine the Torah, but in his words, to fulfill it. So what's happening? There's no denying Jesus is distancing himself from his mother and brothers. That much is clear. But why? Jesus seems to be making a profound point about who is his truer, deeper family, who it is that he's most loyal to, who's most loyal to him. Further, Jesus is subverting any belief that says mere familiarity with him will be enough to participate in the kingdom. Many of us know the kind of common proverb, familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, I like Willard's kind of expansion on it. He writes that the major problem with the invitation of Jesus now is precisely over-familiarity. Familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, unsuspected unfamiliarity, and then contempt. People think they have heard the invitation. They think that they have accepted it or rejected it. 
but they have not. Put most simply, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, and unfamiliarity breeds contempt. It's likely that the very people who thought they knew Jesus don't actually know him very well at all, which is a really haunting reality. So who then is in? Jesus says, anyone who does the will of his Father. In other words, those who hear Jesus' teaching and then respond to them. Um, I love Jesus' word choice, whoever. What about the sinners? Whoever. What about my enemies? Whoever. What about foreigners? Whoever. Every tribe, nation, and tongue. What about women? Whoever. What about the people who don't have the whole picture? The people who believe the wrong things and maybe do the wrong things? What about single people? What about rich people, poor people, privileged people, unprivileged people? Whoever. And I believe that gospel, the gospel hinges on that word, whoever. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This table is open. Anyone. Whoever. Those who do the will of the Father, those who hear Jesus' teaching and put it into practice, these people, regardless of background, make up the family of Jesus. Anyone can be in. Okay, let's come up for air. How are we doing? Okay, you're holding on. I've, <laughs> I don't know how to help you with that. We'll just keep going. If, if you were to summarize this passage, I think the easiest way would be to break it into two interactions. The first being Jesus and the leaders, and the second being Jesus and his family. If I were to parse it out even further, I would break it into four sets of characters, or two sets of characters, rather. The scribes and the Pharisees versus the Ninevites and the queen, and then Jesus' mother and brothers versus Jesus' disciples. I believe that Matthew puts these two stories together because they make similar points. And he does it by contrasting the scribes and Pharisees with the Ninevites and the queen and Jesus' family with Jesus' disciples. He contrasts them to make a point. Uh, like all good stories, we should look at these characters and see what we can learn from them. To pay close attention to what Jesus praises and what he does not. With that, let's start with the scribes and Pharisees. Remember that their ask, in essence— was for Jesus to prove that what he said was true and that what he said was right. They saw a sign. Rather than responding to Jesus, they challenged him. Now, most of us are not experts on the Hebrew Scriptures, nor would we describe ourselves um, as experts on holiness, per se. But most definitely, we do have convictions on truth, and we do have convictions on what's right and wrong. Further, in our culture, uh, we have our own set of ethics— our own set of what is truth and what is blasphemy, of what is good and what is evil, even in a really chill city like ours. Our problem, however, is not that we pit the teachings of Jesus um, against the authority of Moses and the prophets. Ours, I would argue, just humbly, is that we pit Jesus' authority with the authority in our own chest. That we have become our own priests and priestesses, our, our own prophets and prophetesses, our own kings and queens. Deciding on our own sense, our internal sense of truth and lies of right and wrong. I imagine if Jesus were to come to Portland, he would be met with a similar request for a sign. 
Uh, the scribes and Pharisees of our city may not wear robes and carry scrolls, but they probably have iPhones and are on Twitter. But my, my point is that many of us, if we're honest, have asked Jesus to prove himself, to prove that he's worth following, to prove that he's trustworthy. And maybe more practically, it looks like comments such as, can I really trust Jesus or, or the Bible for that matter? Uh, it's so archaic and ancient and out of touch with reality. Or something like, I'm all for Jesus, but I can't get on board with blank. Or if Jesus would just do this, he would just show up in this way, do this thing for me, perform this miracle, then I would be willing to believe in him and follow him. Yet Jesus will not play into our requests for signs. That's not to say that Jesus isn't for evidence, but he seems to believe that his life, his teaching, his death and resurrection speak for themselves. Further, I, I wonder if even if we were met with personal evidence, say whatever your sign is that you were granted that sign, I wonder if we would be all too quick to dismiss that sign in hunger for another sign and another sign and another sign. One scholar writes, it is not a good sign when people seek signs. The more they are taken in by the senate, the remarkable, the impressive, the less susceptible they are to the quiet, solid marks by which divinity prefers to be documented. Put another way, the more we are concerned with flashy signs, big bangs, a show, or a theological wrestling match, the less likely we are to hear the still, small voice of God, which is far more often how he shows up in the world and how he shows up in our lives. Remember that the Jesus we follow was born in a barn on the outskirts of Bethlehem, not on a stage in L.A. or in a lecture hall in Boston. When God shows up, he often shows up quietly, only to be seen by those who seek him, not signs, those who are leaning in, willing to listen, not demand proof. Jesus doesn't only critique the leader's search for a sign. He also critiques their failure to examine and change their inner world. Notice that rather than hearing the teachings of Jesus and then focusing inwardly for how they might respond, how they might change, or how they can live differently, the leaders focus outwardly on critiquing Jesus' words for how they're wrong, how they disagree, and how they might be offended by those words. They've heard enough teachings from the Torah at this point. Okay, I've had enough rabbis teach. I've heard enough readings from the Torah. I've been taught this already. So they assume they have it all together. That they really don't have much more room for change at this point. That they don't have much they really need to prevent, repent of, particularly when Jesus is preaching. Yet Jesus is deeply concerned with the state of our inner world. He wants uh, these teachings to interact with our heart. Jesus' parable of an empty house and a group of demons makes a really similar point. It is not enough to have the house cleaned out and empty. The evil patterns or evil spirits, if you prefer, uh, in our lives need to be replaced with good. The empty, tidy house must be filled one way or another. Someday it will stop being empty. And the question is whether it will be filled with more of Jesus in his way or with something else. Even if the house is pretty on the outside, it is of no use if it is not occupied, filled up with good. And so for us as followers of Jesus, the call remains the same. Will we follow Jesus, giving him his place in the deepest places of our heart, 
or will we pro- project outward? Will we fill our lives with him and his way and his teaching? Or will we remain in apathy, just not letting his teachings to go anywhere below skin deep, maybe coming to church on Sunday, but our lives are nothing more than a tidy, empty home with no Jesus life in them. They're empty. Jesus invites us out of that dangerous middle ground and into decisive discipleship with him. Sign-seeking and projecting outward are not options in the kingdom of God. Um, It's for this reason that Jesus praises the Ninevites and the queen. So unlike the scribes and Pharisees, neither the Ninevites or the queen of Sheba saw a sign from Yahweh. Uh, When the Ninevites were confronted with the message of Jonah, a measly five-word sermon, mind you, they repented, or as one translator put it, they changed their lives when they heard the preaching of Jonah. And something greater than Jonah is here. It seems that, jo- that Jesus is looking for men and women who will hear what he has to say and then respond with repentance. That they'll rethink their lives, rethink their actions, their words, and realign them with Jesus in his way. That rather than putting Jesus on trial and asking for him to prove himself, they will allow Jesus to be Jesus to respond to him with tenderness and openness and obedience. Again, this isn't to say follow blindly or to screen out reason uh, or to be intellectually dishonest. Not, not at all. To think of the story of the Queen of Sheba. The text says that she literally came, quote, came to test Solomon with hard questions and that she, quote, spoke to him all she had in her mind. We can come to Jesus with questions. We can come to him with doubts and brokenness and all of the process But there is a fine line between having questions and demanding answers. Discipleship to Jesus simply does not work that way. Jesus is Lord and we are not. Jesus praises the Queen of Sheba because she came from the ends of the earth to listen. She drew near to listen. Uh, Full confession. Just, I sometimes have these moments when I'm in conversation with someone where they've been talking and they've been talking for quite some time. And I am nodding and giving a verbal, mm-hmm, yeah, oh yeah, totally, that's crazy. And I'll realize, like three minutes in, I, I, I've been gone for three minutes. I've, like, I've heard nothing of what this person said. It happens a lot to my sweet Maddie, and I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> but I wonder how many of us interact with Jesus in a similar way. That we're hearing him, but we're not listening to him. We aren't drawing close to listen, to hear what he would have to say to us and about our lives. Um, Maybe it comes in the way of saying, we've heard this sermon before. Not this sermon, obviously. You've heard a John Mark sermon, but this one. Or I've heard this worship song before. I know all this. It's all familiar. Familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. And unfamiliarity, contempt. Which leads us to our next set of characters, Jesus' mother and brothers. It's important to know that Jesus doesn't slam his family or call them a wicked and adulterous generation. Actually, very little is said about them in this text. But notice, where are Jesus' mother and brothers? They're standing outside. The text actually goes out of its way to tell you twice, two times, they're standing outside. The text doesn't give us much detail as to why they're standing outside. So we don't want to speculate too much. But the text does go out of the way to tell you twice that they're standing outside. 
They're not inside the house. They're not in proximity to Jesus. It might even be noted that they are either A, showed up late, or B, are showing up to get Jesus to stop teaching, which is what happens in another account. But even if neither of these are true, they're not close. They're standing at a distance. They might even be spectating, but it's clear that they're not intimately involved with what Jesus is doing. They're not inside the house, and they're not in proximity. I wonder how many of us are in that place. Not necessarily with church rows. No sweat to those of you in the back. Uh, But I wonder how many of us are keeping Jesus at arm's length. Perhaps we believe in Jesus, or we even had experience with him. Uh, Mary literally got pregnant by the Holy Spirit. But since then, we've grown distant, apathetic, maybe even embarrassed by his teaching, as if it was childish and something we used to believe, but we don't believe anymore because we've outgrown it. Notice that also that Jesus' family, they're not there to listen to Jesus. They're there to speak to Jesus, which I think is an important distinction. We don't know what they wanted to say, whether it was just normal, normal household talk or the updates about Ariana Grande or whatever it may be. But we do know that they weren't there to listen. They might have had objections or concerns, or it might have been a moment of confrontation where they would ask him to stop teaching. Whatever they may have said, it's clear that a wedge has been driven between Jesus and his family, thus pushing Jesus to identify more intimately and closely with his disciples, his true family. For many of us, perhaps we've stopped listening to Jesus because we think we know it already. Again, yeah, yeah, I I know all that stuff about the kingdom. Got it. Yeah, I know the whole life, death, resurrection, practicing the way of Jesus in Portland, all that stuff. But my fear for us again is that maybe we've become so familiar with Jesus that we have actually become unfamiliar with him. That we've started to lose sight of him, that we don't actually know him that well anymore. Maddie and I were people watching at dinner last night, or people judging, I'll let you decide. And... (laughs) we just noticed how many couples were sitting together and not talking. Maybe they're on their phones or they're just buried into their french fries. We were at Tilt. But they're not talking to each other. Nothing's being said. Now, zero judgment if you enjoy silent meals with your boo. Just that's, that's fine. But I do wonder if something deeper is going on. I think that actually this is part of why divorce rates are so high. It is so easy to assume that you know someone, that you've exhausted everything there is to know about them, that you've pretty much have them all figured out. You know, I, I pretty much, I know their Enneagram number at this point, so I pretty much know them. <laughs> and so you kick it into neutral, you stop listening, and you stop engaging and asking questions and listening. I wonder if for many of us, following Jesus has started to feel more like a silent date. Yet Jesus would invite us to more. There's more on offer than that. Look at Jesus' disciples. So contrary to Jesus' family, notice where his disciples are. They are with Jesus. Many of your translations will say that Jesus was, quote, pointing to, so just two words, his disciples. I think a better translation might be that Jesus was stretching out his hand over. It's five words in Greek, and actually painting that picture of a stretched hand out over them. Think about that picture. Jesus' disciples are close enough to him that they're in arm's reach. 
they're close in, closer than you and I are now. Though there's a few of you in the front row, which is a delight. There wasn't last round. The image of him stretching out his hand over them, that particular modifier, might lead us to believe that they're sitting at his feet. Disciples in Jesus' day would sit at their rabbi's feet in order to learn from him. They were close in and listening. This is language of intimacy, of closeness, of deeply knowing Jesus from having been with him. Which is why Jesus goes as far to call them his mother and brothers and sisters. The life of discipleship is the life of intimacy or being with Jesus. As we've said before, the goal of discipleship is to be with Jesus. That's the end game. I think, honestly, that if you get that right and consistently become like Jesus and doing what he did, we'll probably follow. Uh, Maddie and I went away for a weekend a few weeks back, and we got back. Our friend picked us up from the airport, and he asks, um, so how many, how many books did you get through? which is actually a pretty normal question. We do like reading on our vacation. But it wasn't until that moment that we kind of looked at each other and said, uh, none. Because we realized that we spent that whole weekend just simply being together. Nowhere to go, nothing to do, just enjoying one another's company. Or maybe you've had the experience with a dear friend, how the hours just fly by. My friend Adam was just in town and we just spent hours doing all of our favorite stuff and talking and talking and enjoying one another's company. In our discipleship to Jesus, one of the greatest goals is simply just to be with him. That's not to say we don't have questions or that we don't have doubts or that we don't have real areas of wrestling. But through those seasons of doubt and questions and wrestling, we keep fighting to be with Jesus. We're getting up early in the morning to be with him. We keep praying because we want to be with him. We read the scriptures and keep leaning into community because we need to be with him. It is this being with Jesus, this intimacy with him, that is the foundation for our discipleship and our brotherhood to Jesus. All obedience flows out of that. Jesus, in verse 50, says, Whoever does the will of my Father i.e. whoever is obedient to my teaching. Jesus believed that he was revealing the Father. So anyone who responds to his teaching is being obedient to the Father. This kind of person is my brother and sister and mother. Disciples of Jesus do the will of the Father, or in other words, they respond to Jesus' teaching. Uh, the theme of obedience and response is all over Jesus' teaching. A couple months back, we read that story at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks about building your house on a rock, or building your house on sand. And he says that the person who hears his teaching and puts it into practice is the person who builds their house on a rock, that it's steady, that it's solid. But notice the point of obedience is not obedience alone or obligation. It's love. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. It's one of my favorite lines in the Holy New Testament. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Our obedience to Jesus and to the Father is the marker of our love for him. And that isn't to say whether we earn God's love by obedience, but it is to say that we most tangibly experience God's love, that we align ourselves most to drink from the river of God's love in obedience, when we respond to what he's invited us to. So to summarize, the scribes and the Pharisees sought signs and failed to examine their inner world. 
while the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba repented and drew near to listen to what Yahweh had to say. And Jesus honored that. Jesus' mothers and brothers stood outside wishing to speak to him, while Jesus' disciples were with Jesus in arm's reach, did the will of the Father and responded to his teaching with obedience. And Jesus said, that's my family. So the question for us that remains is this. Will we hear Jesus and will we draw near? Will we hear him and draw near? Maybe for some, uh, you have been waiting for a sign, for some way for Jesus to prove himself to you. Uh, In a city like ours, it's really easy to adopt a posture of skepticism or a posture towards Jesus that challenges him to prove himself, to prove that he's good and true and right. And Jesus' invitation for us would be that instead of asking for a sign, we would simply follow him, to trust him. I think a lot of it just hinges, do we trust him? And as we do experience the life that we ache for, to bring all that you are, the questions and the wrestling, and come close and sit at his feet, and in so doing, discover his teachings to be true along the way. Maybe others of us have been close with Jesus in the past. Um, Perhaps You came to faith and you were experiencing deep communion with Jesus or after some sort of experience like a camp or a Holy Spirit conference or whatever it may be. But somewhere along the way, things got distant. Life got busy. Hours of Jesus turned into minutes and then maybe nothing at all. And Jesus would invite you to come and sit at his feet. I think of that picture from the Gospel of John where where John leans on Jesus' chest. This is just intimacy to come learn from him again, to get up early, to go for a prayer walk, to do imaginative prayer, just to be with him. That's the goal, just be with Jesus. That is what discipleship is all about. The dangerous part of getting paid to work at a church uh, is that I get paid to work at a church. And perhaps for many of us, the dangerous part about being at church every week is that you're at church every week. Uh, We can hear a sermon and think, yeah, I I know that, know that, got a degree in it. Or hear a song and go, heard this one before. How many times are we going to sing Beautiful Name? And on it goes. But slowly but surely, in the midst of all this busyness around Jesus, we lose sight of Jesus himself. We become unfamiliar with him actually in the process, and we stop knowing him that well at all. Truth feels cold and distant, not like intimate relationship. In my own heart, as I respond to this text, I think this for me is by far the greatest pitfall, that I have often become too familiar with Jesus so that I actually start becoming unfamiliar. I forget what his voice sounds like. I stop being close to him. I think I know him. I kind of finish his sentences for him. But I've stopped actually hearing him, stopped seeing him. And for me, I've, I've just been wondering this week, what would it look like to hear Jesus with fresh ears? To see him with fresh eyes? Or really, uh, to, to borrow from Jesus, to readopt a childlike curiosity about Jesus. So much of this is it's spun that I used to believe in God, then I grew up. I used to follow Jesus, and then I got wiser, older, smarter. But Jesus points to childlike curiosity and says, that's it. That's it. That's where it's at. Maybe you've had a hard time listening to Jesus, or even more practically, to listening to Jesus in the scriptures. 
And I think that Jesus might be inviting you to pick up your Bible again. Not to cast your questions to the side or to turn your brain off, but to, with those questions, simply listen. To lean in, to draw near and hear what Jesus might actually have to say to you before asking for a sign or asking him to prove himself. Or perhaps more seriously, there's an area of your life where you've been walking in disobedience, a repetitive pattern that you're stuck in, or a choice that you've been making that you know is not the way of Jesus. And Jesus kindly, because he's incredibly kind, would invite you to repent, to turn away. That's what repentance means, to change your mind about what is right and true and good and actually turn. To turn away from the behavior and experience kingdom life. You were made for more, and Jesus is inviting you into life to the full. Remember in Jesus' words, whoever, wherever you are, whoever you are, come near. Would you see Jesus with fresh eyes, hear him with fresh ears, and respond to the life that is truly life? Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit Bridgetown dot church slash give for more information. Thanks for listening.